permit yourself imagination, embrace imagination. And rather than seeing it as child's play, uh, I think imagination is maybe our most critical faculty. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today it's my delight to be speaking with David Staley. David is a futurist, an academic, and an author, and he's an associate professor in the departments of history, design, and educational studies at The Ohio State University. His research interests include digital history, the philosophy of history, methodology, and the history and future of higher education. He leads a podcast called Voices of Excellence and has authored a great many number of papers and books, the most recent of which is called Historical Imagination and another called Alternative Universities, Speculative Design for Innovation in Higher Education. David, it's a delight to have you with us. Thank you for joining. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, Based on that, as you know, in our pre-chat, I'm so excited to delve into some of these ideas. Just as an opener, what's something you've learned recently? So uh, I have learned recently about the uh, the architect Cedric Price, whom I never encountered before. And uh, some um, a mutual colleague of ours uh, said uh, that this is someone you really need to come to know and understand. Mm. Uh, and I've uh, I've I've really uh, be- embraced a lot of his ideas. Uh, especially around architecture and education. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of his ideas were never realized, never built, but his ideas were, are so powerful um, and um, I, I think have a lot of currency today. They were designed in the 60s, uh, but I think have a lot of currency today. Mm. It's, it's, I'm going to have to look him up because I'm, I'm not aware of him as well. But it's, it's the idea that uh, an idea that isn't dangerous isn't worthy of being called an idea at all. And when you think sure. about these disrupt, I think it's Victor Hugo, but these moments really in history with corona and disruption and you know the, ex- the accelerant that it's acting upon in so many different verticals, including the things that we'll talk to, higher education and schooling and companies and society, societal design at large, uh, you know, it really is that we can find these ideas that sometimes haven't been brought into the mainstream, so to speak, or and and yet all of the different contexts has changed around. That means it's it's now imperative. It seems the obvious way to move. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your work broadly. What have you been exploring uh, and discovering through as the, through the work that you do? So uh, I'm I, I think of myself as someone who can't decide what he wants to be when he grows up. <laughs> okay. uh, and so I, I, I afford myself uh, the, the opportunity to sort of explore, explore whatever it is that interests me. And uh, I, think, I, I think I might have uh, too many areas of interest. Uh, and, and maybe that's uh, reflected in some of the books uh, that I've written. So I'm, uh, I'm, an, histo- I'm an historian, uh, but I also spend time as a futurist. Mm. So I actually, uh, uh, I'm actually um, uh, really interested, maybe even more interested in looking ahead than I than I do backward. Uh, but I uh, I argue that uh, how I look backward, the 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 methods that I use to think about the past are the ones I use to think about the future mm-hmm. as well. Uh, I have an interest in universities, uh, 
uh, and more broadly about the idea of knowledge in society <clears throat> and uh, a particular interest in why, why we have universities as, a, as opposed to, to some other kind of institution. You mentioned the, uh, the recent book uh, that I just published on historical imagination. I've become really interested in the, the sort of the phenomenon of imagination, both as, mm -hmm. a, as, a, as a mental faculty, but also sort of the imagination as a, uh, as a space, as a domain. Uh, what does it mean to sort of study or explore that which is imaginary? Mm. Uh, so as I say, I can't, I can't really stay in my lane. Uh, uh, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's the best place to be though. Do uh, you know, it's funny, uh, David, the, the idea of the hyper-specialist and the neo-generalist and the idea that, you know, when we look at some of the forces of the fourth industrial revolution, as it's called by the World Economic Forum anyway, you know, that really the requirement to have people that are kind of too enthusiastic about too many things like yourself and I would also categorize myself as such, uh, really is, is, is you need the knowledge translators, the ones that can take the ideas and bring them into, into being in some way. Uh, and we're always going to need the hyper-specialist that will say, well, this is precisely what we need to do and this is how the building won't fall down and this is the procedure that's required. Um, but, but there's something about the siloed nature of society, but also I think of knowledge, and I'd love you to respond to this, that I think can create a poverty uh, in knowledge or in wisdom where if we stay in our lane too much, we think the lane is the only thing that exists. And, you know, we could take economics as a really good example of this. And I saw a study published some years ago that showed, and, you know, and apologies to my economist friends, that economists were the least likely to say that they should learn another domain because mm. economics is kind of the science of everything in some way. And so for this idea of being able to be a historian, a futurist, an educator, you know, and having these multiple selves, I think just enriches not just our lives, but potentially the contribution we make. And so, you know, how then at universities, you know, this can manifest it in schools and universities, like when we ask people to choose, you know, a special, you know be a, to become a specialist as opposed to creating a really deep suite of transversal skill that they will use throughout their lives. What's, what if, you know, you're the expert on this. This is just my musings. What would you say? Well, no, I, I think your musings are, are absolutely spot on, uh, especially the sort of university uh, at, at, which, at, at which I teach. Uh, so I'm at a, a, a top research university. Uh, we are, we're expected uh, to be specialists, hyper-specialists. And in fact, uh, uh, one of the things that I, that I found through, through my podcast uh, I interview I interview uh, a lot of my colleagues in the arts and sciences. Is that uh, there's a lot of institutional roadblocks to the people that are the the near generalists, as you describe, or polymaths. It's mm. almost as if the the institutions of the university, and I would argue the institutions of our society, uh, sort of mitigate against the neo generalist, against the the against the polymath. There really isn't a, sort of a place or a space. Um, uh, for these sorts of folks. I, uh, I was giving a talk uh, a year or so ago before the pandemic um, and was uh, talking about the example of uh, Herbert Simon. I was about ready to call him the, the what, the economist, the, psych <laughs> the, the psychologist, the computer scientist. Uh, there are so many ways that we could describe someone like Herbert Simon, mm. uh, but he sort of defies uh, classification. Uh, this is someone who's won a, a Nobel Prize in economics, uh, but it's also one of the one of the fathers of artificial intelligence. 
contributed to work and organizational behavior. Mm. And what I told the audience is if he were at a modern university, if he, if he were at my university, uh, which department would he be in? I mean, he, uh-huh. it, 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 it makes no sense to try to place a mind like that in one, in one department. I think that um, we can, our, our schools in particular, can and should be cultivating more neo-generalists, more polymaths. Mm. And I think we also need to um, build institutions in our society that welcome uh, the polymath, that welcome the neo-generalist. Mm. Gosh, that's so interesting. Well, let's go, let's go to your work in universities and then let's circle for, around from there. Where, why have, why do we have the universities we currently have and the model, the kind of education model um, more broadly? And where might we need to go from here in your view? Um, boy, how much time do we have? Why do we have the universities that we <laughs> do? 20 minutes. Well, so in, in, <laughs> yeah. in, in the first instance, uh, mm. I have to say that we need to be clear that uh, it is universities plural. Yeah. Uh, I know it's the reality in this country, uh, but then when you when when you sort of take the globe, uh, there are many different sort of varieties of universities. Uh, we see that we see that certainly here in this country, but I, I think even you know the distinctions between um, uh, between uh, universities in Europe, uh, universities uh, in Australia. Mm-hmm. I think we can point to some uh, some significant uh, differences. Having said that, I think that over the last, say, 30, 40 years, we've watched universities, especially sort of at the higher end, right, or the, the top of the league tables. There's, there, there's been sort of a convergence toward one ideal of what the university is supposed to be. Mm. I mean, that's how, we, uh, that, that's how we strive to be at the top of the Times Higher Education yeah, QS surveys. Or, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that, I think, has uh, uh, been to our detriment uh, because I think that it has led to a kind of homogenization, uh, a homogenization at least of our idea of what a university can be. And I think if you study the history of higher education as I do, uh, you, you become enamored, I think, with the great variety of uh, institutions and institutional purposes mm. uh, uh, of higher education. And so I think, uh, I, I think that what is needed right now, especially are new ideas about what universities can be that don't necessarily follow the model that has emerged in the last 40 years or so. When we think about renewed design principles based on that, what do you think those design principles might be? So you know, variation within an institution versus variation between institutions is something that you could explore. But, you know, the call for innovation in higher education and frankly, all these verticals like e-commerce, which is such an obvious one, that experienced a decade of growth in eight weeks. You know, like there's been these transformations happening around us. We just haven't noticed them because we're all so overwhelmed by what's going on at the moment. You know, what do you think the, the big, not just opportunity is for a higher education, but probably the kind of the imperative? So um, th- there, were, there were those before the, the pandemic, before all of our professionalized moved on to Zoom. There were those that were saying that higher education, the university is inevitably moving online. 
And, you know, we've been saying some version of that for at least 20 years or so. Yeah. That's, that, that's been the mantra. And one of the first things, one of the first things that was stated was, well, this is the moment. This, this was it. Uh, this demonstrated how uh, it, it, is, it is now um, uh, inevitable and uh, irrevocable. That, uh, that, that this is where higher education is moving. I'm not, uh, I, I'm not necessarily in that camp. Mm. I'm not convinced that, um, that higher education's future is, uh, is online delivery um, with, with a caveat. Uh, and the caveat is this, or it, 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 will, it will not be the sort of online delivery that many uh, people think it will be. Right. One of the things that I have learned over the last year of, of, of teaching my classes online is that I have had greater opportunity to teach one-on-one, -on -one, to do in a sense what you and I are doing right now uh, over Zoom. Uh, and I have found more and more occasions to do this. And I have long held, and I've, I've been an educator now for nearly 30 years, I've long held that, that the best form of teaching and learning, the best form of education is that which occurs one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. As you add more sort of students to that ratio, I think the, the, the quality of the experience and the, the quality of the learning is diminished. So, you know, I can teach a, a seminar with a dozen students. But when I, uh, when I teach a class of, say, over 100 students, mm. I think that the, that the nature and the quality of that experience is very different. I think our expectations about online is that, well, we'll be able to teach more and more students. One professor can teach, you know, hundreds, thousands, nay, thousands of students. Whereas what I have found is that this online format has allowed or permitted me a greater intimacy. I can mm. do more one-on-one -on -one teaching. It's actually closer to mentoring. Interesting. And I've actually found it uh, much more gratifying, a lot closer to my ideal teaching and learning environment. Hmm. What do you think then? Because part of that's kind of the pedagogical or the andragogical approach, right? And how that will shift. What's your view as well? And, and I was speaking with our mutual colleague and friend, Jay, uh, Jeff Bush, about this, um, around the, the future of the campus then. Because, you know, when you think about the physical environment as part of the experience of going to a university or going to a school or, of course, indeed going to work in a company or an organization or in government. What do you think the, the changing design principles might be there? I think that um, when we, when we uh, uh, come back to campuses in great numbers, uh, having been away for a year or so, uh, we are going to come to appreciate appreciate the campus and the 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 the, the, the physical environment uh, in a way that we that we sort of maybe took for granted mm. uh, before before our lockdowns before our various lockdowns around the planet uh, and so um, and I know that's that, that's certainly been uh, my case uh, I'm, I'm now more articulate I think about the things that I missed. Uh, about uh, about the campus, uh, and so to that end, I think that the simple answer to the question is, uh, I'm not certain that much is going to change about the physical campus, except you know we might be more 
we might be uh, more careful, I think, about distancing and these sorts of things. I still think that that's still in our future for at least another at least another year or so. But I think we're going to come to realize that physical presence is uh, is um, not just a, a, a side effect of education, but maybe is more central than we than we realize. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think that we are going to come to appreciate more what physical presence means, and especially the third space that a university represents. Mm-hmm. I think of all the things that I have missed being in lockdown, it's it's the third spaces, the third places, the coffee shops and other sorts of yeah. other sorts of gathering places. I have come to appreciate the university as a kind as maybe the, the quintessential third place. Interesting. Yeah, that's such a great point. The, yeah, the idea. I think it's an interesting reflection as well for us, all of us that are doing so many virtual meetings. It's kind of the idea of the the strong links and the loose links. And this has been covered in a few conversations that, that I've had previously, which is the idea that, you know, it's not necessarily the people with whom you're having the call on a specific topic or with a task in mind. It's the it's kind of the not facing each other directly. It's the standing alongside. It's kind of just, yeah, waiting for the lift, you know, and having chats with people that actually might, you're not all fami- that familiar with necessarily. And actually without intention, you know, the idea that just seeing what can, holding the space for emergence, for example, if we use the language of complexity, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I think is what spaces do so powerfully and what a great educational experience also is. It's not just what's being said, it's what's not being said and how you feel as being part of a collective uh, in some settings. So that's a really, yeah. Do, do you think that we'll have, do you think that, for example, the hybrid, or I would not say hybrid, let's say blended, is just a new reality now for universities, that we'll leverage these tools more than we have before, and but leverage them in a way that makes more sense, for example? Well, yeah, I think it depends on on how we leverage. So just to take the uh, take the example of the conversation you and I are having right now, mm. uh, we are literally on opposite sides of the planet, and uh, we're able to uh, enjoy this conversation. And of course, it'd be better uh, in a coffee shop someplace, uh, and maybe that will happen. I, I assume that will happen someday. Mm. But one of the one of the the positive experiences, and I want to be I want to be clear uh, about this. Uh, I have been trying to see sort of silver linings in the uh, in, in the past year. One of the positive experiences I've had is that I have connected with more and more people around the globe mm. than I ordinarily would have. I mean, ordinarily I would have had to fly to a conference or to yeah. fl- fly to Adelaide uh, mm. to have this sort of experience, which is, uh, uh, of course, it's a it, it's a wonderful perk I think about being an academic. Yeah, uh, but it it also comes with other sorts of challenges, environmental among them, mm-hmm. and I've actually had more international connections in the last year than I've had, say, in the previous ten years before that. And I wonder if this isn't going to be a feature of what we mean by hybrid learning. Mm. Uh, that my class will have students not just simply from Ohio and the United States, but will have students from from France, will have students from Australia, mm. uh, and that we will be operating in the same 
sort of time in the same the same space, virtual space. Um, I think a, a kind of global education um, facilitated by Zoom or some other sort of technology would be a wonderful outcome of of of, of an otherwise really sort of tragic year. Mm. Yeah, that's a great. That's a very good point. It's a really good point. Um, the idea of the flattening, you know, or context collapse, you know, like basically now uh, things actually, if you're lucky enough to have access and there's an enormous equity piece to what's happening in the world because, of course, achievement gaps become full-blown access gaps when you look at financial and economic inequality and that needs to be solved. Um, I'd love for us to take this in a slightly... Well, I mean, this is, I've got so many, because we're both aspiring polymaths, you know, there's so many things to try to talk to. But I'd love for you to make a defense of humanities. You know, I, I, well, maybe, maybe you don't want to do that, but I'd love for you to at least address this idea of the kind of, the kind of vocational, the economic paradigm that drives, if there is no, if you're not going to get employed the week after you graduate, then don't do this thing. And I, I'm a massive advocate for employability, no doubt. And I think in some, some cases, universities have gone way too far into the conceptual realm or, you know, the inert abstract knowledge and not, not enough into kind of the applied aspect. But there is something about, you know, how we express who we are. And as, as you gave the example of, you know, Herbert Simon, you know, someone that is a powerful scientist but also creates, you know, new aspects. How do you reflect as really someone that has spent a long period of your time delving into history and the humanities and, and, and arts at large? So uh, there's, there's two ways uh, I can approach this. So the first is the sort of the vocational and what I what I always tell students is that uh, if you if you if you major in if you study a humanities discipline, um, there isn't the the clear, uh, well established sort of pipeline jobs pipeline, which uh, can be very off putting for for students and their parents who who want the the certainty yeah of uh, a um uh, of a, of a jobs pipeline although i would also contend that that certainty might be an illusion uh and that students in those sorts of disciplines uh might be surprised to discover that the pipeline isn't as clear and as obvious as they might think um i tell students that when you study the humanities um you can study well i, I thing is i tell them i don't know what it is you can end up doing because there's so many possibilities open mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and you used the term emergence uh, before. I tend to think of the possibilities as more emergent than sort of finite. Uh, and uh, I, 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 I tell students, uh, the humanities, um, uh, especially in terms of the habits of mind mm. that humanities disciplines provide, uh, that's your direction going forward. That's the sort of thing that you uh, that 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 can drive uh, your vocational career. I think that in in some ways it's trying to get the rest of society to try to understand that. Uh, I think that we in the humanities have to uh, uh, take the extra step of sort of defining ourselves or explaining what it is we do or or, or what our value is. Although I tend to think our, our value is sort of self evident. One of the things I, I, I do with my students is um, I, I talk about the central, the central skill of a humanist, and that's reading. 
Interesting. In uh, in my state, uh, so I, uh, I I live in Ohio. We take reading very seriously until grade three, uh, because you have to pass a uh, you have to be able to read at a third grade level. Otherwise, there's all sorts of dire consequences. But once you've sort of passed that hurdle, reading just sort of gets forgotten. Wow. Uh, and that's because we sort of assume that reading is nothing more than decoding information. Yeah. Uh, but I argue that reading is, in fact, a complex cognitive skill, mm -hmm. as complex as, say, the STEM disciplines, the science or mathematics. Uh, and as proof of that, I, I teach a course in uh, digital history. Mm. And one of the exercises or one of the things I, that I do with my students is that I show them the research around AI researchers trying to teach algorithms how to read. And it turns out that algorithms don't read in the same way that we do. We're actually better readers. Uh, algorithms are really good at playing chess and yeah. really good at uh, you know, reading medical images. It turns out that we are much more sophisticated readers. And so I say, what does that suggest about that cognitive skill? Reading is central to what we do in the humanities. Mm. My goal is to sort of elevate reading to the sort of level that the STEM disciplines have today as this as this vitally important cognitive skill. Mm. And David, you're not clearly just talking about the ability to decode information. Correct. You're talking, you're talking yes. about a particular nuance or a particular capability to discern and to critically reflect, I imagine, on information. Um, and to grasp meaning, to grasp the, the, the meaning of, of, of what's read. It's a difference between reading as sort of syntax and reading as semantics. Yeah. And uh, we, uh, we are particularly good, we meaning human beings versus machines, sure. yeah. are much better at fathoming the meaning of what we're reading. Mm. I love this concept uh, that the key, the central component of being a humanist is, is reading. I had never thought in those terms before because I, I would self-identify as a humanist. Um, Indeed, as someone that you know, in tries to celebrate and embrace diversity, and simultaneously em embrace the universality of what makes us truly human. And I think that's really most of the things I do is about how do we elevate the other dimensions of who we are as human beings. Not because it's just good for us or good for our societies, but it's also good for our economies because anything that is. The AI, the algorithms can outperform us on, they'll end up doing just through the way yes. that our market-based economy will work. So, yeah, what, what else would you say, I mean, about this idea of, uh, of creating more human systems generally? Because I think that, that as the fourth industrial revolution, yes, technology, yes, internet of things, yes, absolutely converging exponential technologies. It's all fantastic. We're going to go to Mars, brilliant. And at the same time, it's... How do we become more humanistic such that we can solve some of the wicked problems that, that we face? You know, we might be able to put someone on Mars and set up a base. That's, I'm so excited about that. And I'm also curious about why we have been unable to solve poverty globally or why we have such significant inequality or why we insist upon creating externalities in our economic models. That means we can destroy the environment in which we live and which sustains us, which seems like an ultimate act of self-harm at some level, right? So, yeah, what do you, what do you think? You step into this futurist role that you play so beautifully. And, you know, where are we going? What, what needs to happen? 
I've been uh, giving a lot of thoughts, uh, deliver a fair number of talks about where I think the future of AI is, is going. And um, uh, one of the ways in which I frame the question is, if you're gonna talk about the future of artificial intelligence, that is inseparable from questions about the future of work, and you cannot talk about the future of work without also simultaneously talking about the future of leisure. Awesome. I envision a future where uh, leisure becomes more and more important and, in fact, may be more central to who we are as human beings. We will still work. In fact, I draw a distinction between work and employment. I think that machines and AI will eliminate many forms of employment. That's different from work. You and I are working right now, hmm. for instance, uh, and, and, and taking, I think, from my vantage point, I'm taking much joy and satisfaction from this. But this is not something I'm doing for employment. Uh, I, I feel, and, and we've seen this in some of the early uh, uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income Experiments, that even under conditions of UBI, people still feel the need to work because I think that's a, a basic human mm. impulse. Mm. And I think that one of the things that we're going to discover is that uh, work, well, being able to define our own work is, uh, is, is going to be the, sort of the definition of, uh, of, of what it means to be human. But that the that the that the dichotomy between work and leisure is going to is going to dissipate. Um, we are going to redefine what we mean by work, uh, and it's going to look more and more like what we think of today as leisure. Oh, I just like I'm just it, this is because Bertrand Russell comes to mind. You know, when you think about oh yes. um, you know <laughs> when you talk about leisure, uh, and even Jules Verne and others. You know, the whole idea that technology will enable us to live a life of leisure. And what it's actually created for us is this, this kind of life of ultimate optimization and increased stress and constant connectivity that actually doesn't necessarily enable us to slow down and to presence who we are and to, to really have the choices that we might make. You know, we work more than, <laughs> not more than we ever have because, you know, pre-union movements, you know, the eight-hour workday, there were, there were some 70, 80-hour weeks going on. But a lot of people would say that's their, that's their life right now. Uh, yes. So I, I'm, I'm really, I think that's just a really interesting, how do we get there? What kind, of, what kind of mental model shift do we need, Dave, to get there? Well, let's not, um, let's not think of and therefore let's not enact automation as a threat. I think that, that's the way, it, and, and I think with good reason, it's the way that we talk about automation today, uh, because we are so dependent upon employment. Mm. Uh, our society, I mean, in as much as technologists are, are every day um, uh, advancing the frontiers of AI and the potential for automation, we have not, we're just simply not a society uh, or a political economy that is set up for an automation economy. Uh, it could be quite disastrous, frankly. So uh, in parallel with this, uh, uh, this uh, the development of the tools of automation has to be a society and culture and a civic society that uh, is oriented uh, toward, uh, uh, toward automation. I had a, a, a dear colleague, uh, years ago, when I was starting off as an educator, I was teaching a course in science technology studies. Mm. 
and uh, uh, he's someone whose uh, counsel uh, I welcomed. And uh, he said to me once, uh, in the future, education will be preparing us for unemployment. <laughs> and I thought he was completely off his rocker. I thought that's just, that, 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 just uh, mm. that, that notion uh, now uh, resonates so much with me today to educate people for unemployment. In other words, where unemployment is not the end of our lives or the purpose of education, but something else, something that's not employment. Well, what's that something else? That opens up a space for people like you and me uh, to dream and to, and, to, and to devise all sorts of, I think, wonderful alternatives. Oh, it's, I'm trying to, there's, there's a Greek philosopher that wrote something like the, the true purpose of education is to enable us to know what to do with our free time. You know, it's this idea of when we actually have choice. Uh, is, is this just too optimistic, David, do you think? I'm an optimist. I put it on the table. But, you know, is, is this just a, or is it just a bit techno-optimistic as well, which is saying tech will save us? I mean, how do we, you know, I, I do like Harari's reflection, of course, as a, as a you know, notable historian as like yourself. Which is for every investment we make in artificial intelligence, we must make the same investment, and I actually say 10 times the investment in raising human consciousness, because it's a dance between the level of our technology and the level of our wisdom as a collective intelligence or as a species, is it not? Uh, so it is optimistic, and I, um, uh, I, I am guilty as charged that it's optimistic. <laughs> But, yeah. um, and as, as is true in all my futuring uh, and my foresight work, mm. uh, I'm not making a prediction. Mm. I do not believe that you can make uh, predictions about the future or, or that predictions stick. Uh, the future is in too much of a quantum state to be able to make a prediction. Uh, and in fact, anybody that stands in front of you and says they can predict the future is lying to you or lying to themselves. But that said, I uh, choose to project an optimistic uh, view of the future, an idealized view of the future, as a way then to try to design that future. I think that if you can visualize it, then comes the, frankly, the, uh, the, the realist work of trying to actualize mm. that future. And so while I'm optimistic, and while I have an optimistic vision of the future, uh, I am uh, also not naive enough uh, that I don't see uh, how challenging that will be. So when I talk about our society needs to be reorganized for such a, such a society, that is not an easy lift. Mm. That is a uh, th that takes a dramatic uh, uh, that takes a dramatic change in political will. Mm. But. Uh, we well, we have to do that. Who else? Who else but us? <laughs> Who else is going to uh, carry out that work? As as the truism goes, maybe we are the people we have been waiting for. You know, the idea that ultimately we have the responsibility and that we we have the agency. Uh, and yet, there's it. Yeah, <laughs> if we take that view, then uh, the future will be what we make it. And I think there's so much externalizing for a whole range of reasons in. in and many of these reasons I continue to try to discover as part of psychology, whatever, you know. Um, but how do we become highly agentic and project a positive future 
and then bring that into being. Like, I, and I think that idea is, I'm really interested in the com in complexity theory at the moment, David, as you can imagine, right? Doing a lot of system level work. It's, how do we create the right conditions and dimensions so that things can emerge? Um, I want to talk to you for another a couple of hours, so I'd love to organize as that soon. <laughs> Um, so, but with the end of our schedule time, I would love for you to try to, you know, what is the thing that you would want to say right now that you think is most important to focus on or for us to attend to? What's the take home message, so to speak, that you have for not just our listeners, but for anyone living in the world right now? Um, permit yourself imagination, embrace imagination. Um, as I said, it's the, it's the topic of a, of a recent book, but it's actually something I talk about in, in many of my books. Uh, I've become uh, a, uh, an advocate for uh, the increased use of imagination. Mm -hmm. And rather than seeing it as child's play or as, uh, as you know, daydreaming or a waste of time, uh, I think imagination is maybe our most critical uh, faculty. Uh, and I think one that we especially need today, not just, not just for universities. I say that in, in alternative universities, that we need greater strategic imagination. I think that there are just so many other challenges that we face that, that requires, demands greater imagination. And um, I think it's something, uh, I think it's something that needs to be part of schooling. Uh, I think it's something that needs to be um, uh, rewarded in our society. I think it uh, should be a requirement of our politicians and other leaders. Yeah, great. Uh, but uh, the embrace of and the permission to engage in imagination, I think, is absolutely critical. David, what a delightful conversation. The first of many, I hope. Thank you so much for joining us for the Learning Future podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.